Part of it is you have to you have to walk the talk and you have to live your values and those have to be aligned because if not your employees and your customers are going to call you out. Hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. Welcome into another episode of Human Resolve. We're so glad to have you join us this week. My name is Mark Minner, President and Chief Strategy Officer at First Person, joined by my colleague, Megan Nail, the Vice President of Total Rewards and Compensation at First Person. And our special guest here on Human Resolve this week is Sally Anderson, who is the Workforce Diversity Director at Google, also has deep experience within SHRM, member of the SHRM Board of Directors. Sally, it is so nice to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mark and Megan. It's great to be with you today. Well, it's interesting when you tell somebody you're from Google, I'm sure you get a, a wide variety of reactions. One of the largest companies in the world. And certainly, I think when you grow up, we'll talk about your background. We'll talk about how you got here. But you ever lose sight of it that you work at Google? I don't. I recognize what an honor and privilege it is to work at this company. I've just celebrated my 13th anniversary and I never lose sight. The tremendous workforce and Googlers that I work with. And I feel very fortunate to have had a great career at Google. Getting into technology and tech wasn't necessarily your background in college, Sally. In fact, hospitality was your background. How did you get involved in that in school? So I went to Penn State University and I started as what we call DUS, a division of undergraduate studies. And I had a lovely experience talking to representatives from various colleges and it would be their academic advisors. And I just fell in love with a hospitality program. They call it hotel, restaurant and institutional management and decided to declare that my major. And I, I had a great time. I had so many wonderful courses and advisors and opportunities even on spring break to go to Jamaica to do research as part of a tourism experience. And so it's kind of, uh, that was it, you know, I just really loved it. And you know, did start in the hospitality industry post-graduation with Parkhurst Dining, which is in the Pittsburgh area, and then Hyatt Hotels in the DC area. And eventually that's how I got to Chicago was, was through the Hyatt connection. And part of your background growing up, Sally, as well, the word hospitality wasn't necessarily something you were foreign to. You were able to, to watch your dad and your, your uncle own businesses. And, and hospitality, certainly something that expands into every industry or business, uh, just that, that concept of creating a great experience. Now, thanks for recognizing that, Mark. And for those that are listening, my dad and my uncle were partners in independent pharmacies. They actually had two. And I learned from a very young age what it meant to take care of their clients and their patients, as they called them. My least favorite activity was dusting all of the pharmacy shelves, which we had to do to make it look spotless. But I really loved when I got to work the cash register and it just interface with the patients that would come in. What kid does not love working the cash register? I would have loved to do that. It was a blast. And these are like old school cash registers too, not these digital ones. So let's be clear. <laughs> the old school one where it ka-chings every time you open it. Absolutely. So you're working in the pharmacy. You're, you're, you're understanding the value of what it means to 
work in a great organization where you're creating a great experience. You also, in your in your hometown, had a very diverse hometown. You also grew up in, a, in an environment where you had, you know, not just a sort of pigeonholed perception of what the world really was. One of the pharmacies was based in Midland, Pennsylvania, which was in the heartland of the steel industry back back in the day, so to speak, when they were still operating. And it attracted all this diverse talent and, and diverse communities because of the opportunities to work in the steel mills and the surrounding businesses. And so I met people of all different backgrounds, all different religions, races, nationalities, and they would come into the pharmacy. And so for me, you know, having the chance to work in that environment, and I learned very early on from my parents parents, how important diversity, and they, they wouldn't have called it DEI at the time, but just how important it was to be really inclusive and help others belong. Did you feel like you understood that at that time at a young age? I mean, that you said they, they tried to talk to you about it. They, they tried to make people feel inclusive. I mean, did that seem like a concept that you learned or was it just something you were just kind of by osmosis you were experiencing? I didn't know anything different. So for me, it was just part of, of our family and our community and, and how we treated others. And so probably we're looking back now and reflecting, I don't know if other of, of my peers had that same experience. I think part of it was just the opportunity to, to spend that time with my dad. Wasn't always happy wait, working up really early on a Saturday to work with him, but it really did shape how I thought about DEI and, and even how I think about DEI today at work. And you've gotten in that role now with DEI at, at Google does that experience that you had where you feel like from a young age, diversity was just kind of the way it was, like that was the, the way it was. That's the way the world worked. And you probably see a wide array of Googlers. You probably see a wide array of folks you interact with. How does your experience and now understanding that everybody didn't necessarily come from that background, how are you able to talk through that with folks and learn other people's journeys? That is a great question, Mark. And I wish more people would ask that because some of it is just being curious and understanding others' experiences in life. And so it goes to that sense of belonging, inclusion and belonging. And it starts with belonging and understanding people's stories and their diversity narratives. I mean, I'm very clear. I know my identity as a, a white, cisgender, heterosexual female. And so because I'm able to like lean into, I know who I am, I know how I present, I know how I identify, it helps me understand and be curious about others' gender or diversity identities and, and how they like how they prefer to be acknowledged. And I share this too, is our 13-year-old just shared that they're non-binary and they prefer the pronouns they, them, and also changed their name recently. And the therapist that they were working with said, hey, you know, how did your parents respond? And they said, well, my mom works in diversity. So of course she was okay with it. And so I think there's an element too of how you make others feel accepted and comfortable and trust. And, and I think that is just really being genuine about your experiences. The other thing I would share too is we are now in such a society where diversity, equity, inclusion stories are on the news. So there's always something to talk about and, and actually sit in that discourse with each other, which can be really uncomfortable. But that's how we actually help educate each others on these topics that are so critical today, especially around racial injustice and the social unrest. I mean, there's so much opportunity as a society to learn and grow with each other. And I just feel very fortunate that I get to do this work at Google to support our communities. How have you addressed some of those topics at Google this year? Well, some are very public. You know, you can see Sundar's commitments in his CEO blog post to our racial equity initiatives. And so it's very, you know, out there when we think about supporting communities and where we're going to grow our different sites and the different resources, how we've invested in the communities. So that that's one thing that's very public. I think second, 
and without like breaking any confidentiality, it's just the conversations we have internally and hold space for our communities. I'll, I'll call them listening sessions. So if you think about the impact to the Black and the Asian American communities, how do we hold space and even talk to those ERG, employee resource group leaders, about what do they need and, and how do we support them and how do we enable our allies to really know what it means, what allyship looks like and how they can be good allies. And for those who aren't familiar with allyship, how would you define that? I would define allyship as being someone that is committed to learning about the topics, what it means to be an anti-racist, what it means to have a voice and speak up for others when they may not be comfortable or, or not even are in the room. And so it's not just the words you speak, but the actions that you take to to support those communities that are, are marginalized. Because when you're in the majority, that's when you you talk about this like unconscious bias training. When you're in the majority, that is the time when you, you can help those that are in the minority the most. Yeah, Sally, I think I was thinking about what you were saying, and I think it really goes back to the need to really listen to our employees about these important issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and just in general, everything that's going on right now. When we think about mental health, DI, remote work, the struggles that our caregivers are experiencing right now in so many different ways, I think just really having that listening and helping us build that competency and that skill around truly listening and being curious and understanding can apply to so many different facets and probably most importantly, diversity and inclusion. Yeah, thanks, Megan. And I always try to be very conscious in one-on-ones or in group meetings, just checking in, like, how are you? And just really holding that space. And, and to your point around the listening, I think sometimes when people ask that questions, it, it can come across as inauthentic because it's like, how are you? And they're already thinking about the next topic. But just holding the space to say, how, how are you? You know, and how can I support you? I think Monday I did a check-in with my leadership team and it was hard. It was a really hard start at, given additional news coming out of Minneapolis. Yeah. And I think it really, it makes it even harder. You make a great point, Sally, when we're remote too, and you're working with global teams and we're all very focused in our busy jobs and trying to get these tasks accomplished and really not losing that relational aspect of really checking in on people. And like you said, how are you? And really pausing and giving them the trust that they can share back how they truly are and not just sharing an easy answer. You talked about kind of the very public nature of Google and especially in situations where you're trying to respond to large, either, you know, local national stories. Is there a pressure that goes along with that? And I think a lot of organizations out there who aren't necessarily the size of Google might struggle to say, what's our role in this as an employer? What's our role when something happens in a a local level or a national level? Obviously, Google has more visibility, but what would you, what would you say to other organizations out there in terms of how to tackle tough conversations either publicly or within their own organization. Thanks for asking, Mark. And this is so relevant. I was having deja vu back to over the summer when a slew of companies, very public, big brands were coming out with their commitments when it when it was in support of racial equity initiatives. And they fell flat because they were just words and the words didn't meet their actions. And if I think about Ben and Jerry's, I think theirs was probably the best. I mean, of course, I loved our Google statement, but outside of Google, like I do think that Ben and Jerry's, you know, it was humble, we're listening, we're learning. I can still see the homepage. I can't, I can't remember all the exact words, but I just read it and said, yes, like talk about being humble and having humility in the moment to say what you're working on. 
but there were other large brands that really fell flat on their messaging. And so I would say to companies and organizations, small or shops of one or very large corporations, part of it is you have to, you have to walk the talk and you have to live your values. And those have to be aligned because if not, your employees and your customers are going to call you out. So I think it's really important that organizations know what their core values are. They know what they stand for. Just this week, I know that Google and other large tech companies, you know, the whole Fang crew, they signed on behalf of all these voting rights issues that are happening, especially in Georgia. And that just reflects our company and, and our values and what we stand for. And so I think it's important to say something. You know, I found where organizations really struggle is because they don't say anything or they're afraid to say something or get it wrong. And I think there's that element of like, I might not be getting this right, but we're trying. You know, we're trying to do the right thing and we're trying to support our communities. And I do think employees really value having that humility too, especially when leaders, they try and they're trying to get it right. Wow. This episode is powerful. Are you feeling it too? Take 23 seconds. Seriously, we timed it to leave Human Resolve a review on Apple Podcasts. We might just give you a shout out. Plus, more reviews means we get access to more influential, impactful people leaders from across the globe. It's a win-win. Thanks so much. In a year like this, there are so many people that I feel like have, you mentioned being able to go around your team just saying, how are you doing? What's going on? Just the, the human element of that. I do think the... For some organizations, they've not been used to remote work, right? And how that balances. Megan brought up mental health and some other challenges that are accompanied by now working from home and and working longer hours in some cases, or feeling like you can never really escape the office. What would you say you've done or seen at Google in terms of being able to support the Googler's ability to... By the way, I love saying that. That's terrific the Googlers who are going through that or who don't yet know that they're going to run up against the wall. And it's seemingly like, where is the end of the tunnel here through this all? You know, I think it's the right conversation we should be happening because I think the next pandemic we're going to be experiencing is a sharp increase in mental health. And and I share this and I'm very public about it is that our 13 year old suffered a mental health crisis on January 2nd and we're not out of it. You know, we're 102 or three days later and we're still in this crisis. And even the Wall Street Journal on Saturday had a great article. There was a nice feature on the front page and then two full pages in the first section about adolescence and mental health and the impact And I was reading it. I'm like, well, what about all the adults? What about the parents? What about people who have been living in isolation solo? I mean, I've heard stories of, I'll just say, peers who have had to help some kind of adult family member or friend who's really struggling to the point of of suicidal ideation and deep, deep depression. And so I don't know what the world's going to look like on the other side of all the pandemics we're in right now. And so I'm answering this, I think, from Sally's opinion on society. I don't think we're prepared. I don't think there are enough professionals for what's about to come, nor do I think people are comfortable asking for help. There's such a a societal stigma around mental health. And so that's one thing coming out of what I'm living through personally right now that I'd like to bust is how do we how do we remove that stigma so people can get the help and talk about it? I think from a Google perspective, hey, we have a great employee assistance program that we use that has an amazing, I would say, resource around mental health with different therapists that you can tap into. And so I'm, I'm really happy that 
that is one resource we've had and they've actually expanded the coverage. So there's some additional sessions that Googlers can take part of. So I think for me, it's just making sure that we share internally what resources that we have, that they are available to all Googlers and that Googlers are taking advantage of them. Yeah, I'm curious what you think, Sally. I often think about the role that the workplace plays in mental health in so many different ways, because for a lot of us, whether it's virtually or in person, we spend more time with our colleagues than we get to spend with our families. And just thinking about the role of the workplace in all of us in trusting each other and recognizing how we might be able to help a colleague or provide them with resources and really help to be part of that safety net for what people are going through right now. Do you see that at Google or? I do. In, in my experience personally, too, and I know I'm not alone, and there's been a lot of articles that here we are a year in pandemic and people have never worked harder and longer. And I think it was about, was it May or June of last year, there was an article called Surge Capacity that we all have our surge capacity and, and I'll just throw out it's like six to eight weeks. But now we've been running at that for months. And so it's like, at what point do you get to refill your cup? Do you get to refill your surge capacity? And so that's to your point, Megan, it's not just the mental health. I just worry about people's physical health because I don't think people are going to the doctors as much for preventative care. You know, they're afraid of COVID or their doctors, even therapies all online and Zoom. It's not even in person. So I think there's a, a lot to your point around how can employers help because I think they have the ability to just to check in. You know, if you're doing employee opinion surveys, it's a great way just to check in and get a pulse and see how you know companies can continue to help support their workforce and their well-being, which I know all companies are struggling with right now just because of we're always here. We don't have that commute time. We don't have the ability to, you know, whether you drive or you take public transportation, those were natural breaks in our day, our starting and stopping points. And for many of us, we, we get up, make some breakfast and go straight to work. I've heard stories of Googlers, but also some peers actually of my husband where they get up and intentionally like drive around the block or, or walk around the block just so they have that break. And so I think there's opportunities we can get creative as, as we're, we're living through this a few more months or however long we're in this situation. No, I think you're right. And I really think that our managers and supervisors are so critical in that whole equation because they're just that linchpin in a lot of communication. And I really feel like they have the trusted relationship with employees, hopefully most of the time, and they can see those early warning signs and intervene. So that's been something on my mind is what resources can we further provide to equip our managers and to help them with the own struggles they have as they're maybe carrying the burden of their employees and then dealing with our own stressors as well. I don't think we can forget, though, that we need to take care of our managers and leaders, too. They're also human. And so how do we, as a, to your point around the workforce, just create that safety umbrella for everyone to check in and, and say, like, sometimes it's OK not to be OK, or if you need to take a well-being day. I don't think we're all doing a great job with you know, self-care, or self-love, like whatever you want to title it. And so that mindfulness is even more important. And that doesn't mean just meditation, but it, it's, and I love my Headspace app and I love all my Peloton meditation and, and different classes on there, but it's really thinking about the foundation. Are people getting enough sleep? Are they eating right? Are they really you know, hydrating? A guy drinks so much water. That's probably the one thing that I've, I haven't given up since being in the office and my coffee. I love my coffee in the morning too, but it's, it's how are you taking those small pieces of what used to be normal and make sure you're incorporating them into your workday to try to help with your well-being. Part of building a being in the role you are is helping continue to build a, a very diverse team, Sally, for some organizations in different geographies or different industries, they've been 
slower than others to be able to or put a focus on or whatever the case might be, the intentionality around building a more diverse team. How would you suggest that somebody who says, I really want to do that, I'm struggling to figure out how to do that for whatever reason, maybe the places that I recruit aren't, I haven't had a strategy, I haven't been intentional about it, I don't know how to go about doing that. How do people who who listen to your message, who listen to the conversations this year about the the power of diverse teams, the power of uh, diverse organizations, but are trying to figure out what the right first steps are to build those teams, how would you mentor or or shepherd others in that journey? So I'm going to be a little cheeky. And the first thing I'm going to say is I would challenge any org that's like, hey, we're hitting our numbers. We're doing great, you know, revenue, sales, whatnot. We're we're all positive. Why do we need to change anything? And, and I would challenge them to say, well, that's great that it's good today. That could change tomorrow because you aren't looking at your diversity. And so I just kind of call out there that just because things are going well, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be taking a look into your DEI strategies. And so I, I think there's a couple things I would recommend. And first, you know, we, we love our data at Google. And so just looking at what data do you have available? Do you do self-ID data? Do you understand your population? Do you understand trends when it comes to staffing or retention? So one is just taking a look at data, but also looking at your strategies and where do you have opportunities to think about structurally or, or with processes, like where there is inequity. And so there's just an element of just really getting down to some of the basics of, you know, what is your strategy? How are you going to measure it? What data do you have available for you? And then I think it's enlist others. There's a great opportunity too to, to have listening sessions, to listen to your affinity or employee resource groups, what they're looking at. A lot of times if you ask, you have team members that have some really great ideas about how you could increase your, your representation at your organization. I think there's also an element too... And we haven't touched upon this yet, but the world at work is going to look differently. And some of it is just people are going to choose, you know, how to work differently because of they've made life choices or where they want to live or how they want to work. And so I think that's a challenge to employers to think about, like, what does flexibility look like? Are, are you going to make it mandatory that people go into the office all the time? Because work work is going to look very differently. And so, you know, Mark, my kind of my open question to your question is, like, how do we think about what DEI looks like in the new workplace? which we're not there yet. We haven't quite returned to the office to know what that looks like. You said you're data heavy and to no surprise at Google around this. Are there interesting insights or analyses that you look at that have jumped out to you, trends, things that you've seen since you've been in that role? Yes. And I can't necessarily share them due to confidentiality. But what I will share is I'm really proud that Google continues to publish its diversity annual report. And so in that it's a beautiful document. We're actually working on the launch of the next one, which will c- come out over the summer. But you'll see all the things in, that I, I get to see. So about our representation and our inclusion. And so for me, I just I really appreciate that Google's transparent about their data and where they're making strides and where we have opportunities and gaps. I think if you marry that with the racial equity commitments, you can see where we're focusing our energies internally, but also in our community. For me, I like to dig into some of our retention cases and how do we get to where we are and what trends are we seeing and and how do we systemically correct those across Google. So for me, it's not just looking at the symptoms. It's also treating some of the root causes, which could be some of our own processes. You always hear about companies' core values. You always hear about what the kind of pillars are for organizations. Uh, You have your own personal core values that you're able to kind of ground yourself in. And I think that's an exercise that not a lot of people go through to think about that for them. How did you, how did you embark on that process? How did you determine what they were and and what, what has that done for you? 
I love using this exercise actually with any of my coaching clients and, and asking them what their core values are. And I'm always surprised. I would say a majority of the time, they have no idea. And so it's a great way where we try to distill what those are because a lot of times that's what's holding them back. You know, my core values are around honesty and integrity, trust, fairness, service to other and family. And, and those aren't in any particular order. It depends on the day, which one's the priority. Family has been really high, as you can imagine, over the last couple of months. But there are great exercises out there. Where you, and I hate to play the pun, but if you Google core values exercises, you'll get different recommendations and, and try one that actually resonates with you. Some of them are like you print things out and you cut them. Some of them are you write things down. I've seen card sorting exercises. I think the first one I did, it was actually at a team offsite. And I remember we were in our New York office. I can remember where I was and who I was partnering with because it was so impactful. I was like, oh my gosh, I've never really sat down and like, you know, what are your top 20 and then do your 10, then do your five. And, and then reading them, I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. Like, these are the things I care about. And then I would say over time, I started seeing that when I was feeling uncomfortable or very triggered, it's because one of my core values was triggered. Like it was like this light bulb of like, oh my gosh, now now I know why I'm upset by this or I'm really struggling with a certain project or, or someone that I'm working with because I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing, I think as Megan knows from our Sherm connection, but, you know, I'm very empathetic and, and honest and transparent. And so when I would like, when any of my core values are rubbed against, now I can quickly identify it. I think that's great, Sally. And I think what we're going to see, as you said, as the world of work changes and more individuals reflect, whether it's through the diversity, equity, inclusion lens or just on their core values in general, that there's going to be more of a focus on finding an employer that aligns with their core values, which isn't always very easy depending on what's available to you. So just thinking about that from an individual standpoint and then how that translates into the work that you do and who you choose to work with. I think you're spot on, Megan. And I love companies that are so bold to post what their core values are. And so I think for anybody that's looking at a new organization, if you can't find it, that's kind of a clue, you know, that they're not living and breathing. And, you know, we call them our, our three respects, excuse me. So respect the user, respect each other, respect the opportunity. And, and we have core values that sit under those two. But I think ask, and what I'm finding too, is that a lot of companies are in transition. They're going through big culture transformations right now, and they're trying to identify what does that look like and how do we transform to where we want to go? Easy. Resolve Increments takes your favorite stories from human resolve and shows you how you can make a difference at your organization. Get your pass for upcoming virtual and in-person events at firstpersonadvisors.com slash events. You also mentioned the work you've been able to do with SHRM, and obviously, Megan, that's something that you're passionate about as well. What has that experience meant to you, and, and what, is, what experience uh, does that continue to, to bring to you? I love talking about SHRM, and especially Chicago SHRM, which is my home chapter. And early on in my career in HR, when I was at Hyatt Hotels, this wonderful woman named Sandy, we were peers. I was on the domestic side, and she was on the international side, and she encouraged me to, to get involved with Chicago SHRM. And, and she said, not just join, like really volunteer, because, you know, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And so I took her advice, and I got really involved with Chicago SHRM, started on a certain committees, and eventually um, stayed on the on one of the tracks around education and eventually became vice president and president and past president. And that's actually when SHRM was having their annual conference in Chicago. 
And then it's like the mob, like you can't get out sometimes. So they asked me to come back and be president again after a few years. I think I had been past president and they're like, would you do vice president again and president? And partly because Sherm was coming back and we were going through a transformation of structure and they were looking for continuity. And so I agreed to do it. And it was a great experience. I mean, I have made lifelong friends through Chicago Sherm and those that I've served on on the board. And through that experience, and especially having such a connection with Sherm when they were at the annual conference those two times, they actually reached out to see if I would be interested in joining the national board. So I raised my hand and, and interviewed. You know, I won't lie. I didn't get... They selected someone else the first time. Our, our friend Steve Brown, for those of you that know Steve, which I was like, I think I know who they selected if it wasn't me in a positive way. And they came back the next year and said, we have a spot. We're interested if you are. And so, of course, so I'm actually serving. This is my fifth year. I have one more year after this year on the board. I've had a great opportunity to having a chance to serve on the compensation committee. And right now I'm on the audit committee. And I also liaison with what they call the MAC, the Membership Advisory Committee. So they're the lead reps from all the five areas that really are the voice of the volunteer leaders to share. Yeah, Sally, I think a lot of what I experienced um, and continue to experience in SHRM is similar to your story. What I found when I started with SHRM many years ago through that same path that you did with volunteerism is I was just looking for a community because being in HR can be a really lonely job. There's not a lot of people that you can talk to about what you're working with at work. It's very confidential. And it's just was looking for that community of people that understand and support. And I think between that and the different leadership opportunities that I had throughout time, it's really been an important part of my professional career. And I just have to say, Sally, I really appreciate how inclusive you are at all the SHRM events of the volunteers. And you really, I can see how you live your core values throughout your your time with SHRM as well. Thank you, Megan. And, and I appreciate all you've done for the SHRM community and you know your fellow volunteers. And to your point around the development, I remember we were having a conversation about why people should volunteer. And I just rattled off like all these things you learn from a business sense, you know, budgeting. And if you're thinking about planning events and, and thinking about sponsorships and what's about the value back to those of the sponsorees and the values of members and employers and you actually kind of step out of HR for a little bit and have a different experience of running an association. But to your point, like HR could be really lonely. And that's what I really loved about Chicago Sharon was having that community where I could, you know, we could commiserate or laugh or share our highlights. There's always good HR stories, as everybody knows. So those were always fun to share together, too. No, I think you're right, Sally. And it's a really great leadership development because I think the other part, you obviously work at one of the world's largest organizations. But for those of us who work in smaller and mid-sized organizations, the HR departments often aren't huge. So what I found is it gave me the opportunity to develop my leadership skills in a very real way that there just wasn't always the opportunity in the organization I was working, working within. So it's been very, very valuable. Sally, if you were going to have a cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate or whatever with somebody who's young in their career, and I say hot chocolate because that used to be my flavor of choice. But if you're if you're out there and somebody's just starting up their HR career and you could go back and you could say, hey, this is the advice I would give you if I could go back and, and start my career. These are the experiences I'd try to gain or this is the things I would learn. What, what is that conversation for you to somebody just starting out in their career in HR? I actually had this conversation with a student recently. I spoke at a, at a DePaul event and one of the students reached out to connect. And it would definitely be coffee, Mark. My kids would say hot chocolate, but I'm definitely a coffee drinker. <laughs> you know, it's such a great conversation. And, you know, what I shared with this 
rising HR professional who's still in college is that the world is going to look a lot different given coming out of the multiple pandemics we're living in right now. So not just COVID, but the racial injustice, socioeconomic, geopolitical. I've added a fifth one, which is the mental health crisis, which we're in and is going to become a bigger pandemic. And so what I shared with them is take a grain of salt with all the advice that people are giving you and just know it's going to look different. Like we don't even know what return to office is going to look like or or how we're going to think about commuting and and all those different things that used to be normal. I mean, think about the last time you went to a concert or a sporting event. Like what is that going to look like in the future, not just at work? And so the other piece of advice I would give is be open, be open to any opportunity, even though you on paper, and I had one of those experiences where I was like, I really don't want to do benefits. But it was a great experience. I learned a ton. And so be willing to, to shift into things and and try different opportunities that on paper, you might not be interested, but really give you a full rounded career in HR. The other thing I would share too, is raise your hand. Some of the biggest learning opportunities I had were on projects, cross-functional projects or the really sticky ones that you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get this done, but you learn so much and you take risks and you learn from them. As I tell my team, fail fast, learn from it and carry on. So I think there's an opportunity there too. And I think the other one too is to your point around like the core values, you need to work at a place that aligns with your core values. And and just because you're like, oh, I like, I'm going to make this up. Like, I like healthcare. I'm going to go work over here or I'm going to work at the biggest one or this big brand name. If it doesn't align with your core values, you're you're never going to be happy at work. And I think, Megan, you mentioned this before, how much time we all spend at work. You got got to get the employer right. Megan, what would you say in addition to Sally's comments? Yeah, I agree. And Sally, to hit on and just echo what you said, being flexible and don't try to plan out your future too far because we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be. And technology is a big influence on that in the world that we're in and the pandemics that you mentioned. So I I would say, and just looking back, don't think about, well, I want to attain this position or this level someday, because who knows if that's even going to exist. Think about what skills you want to learn, what experiences you want to have, how you want to develop, and then just being open-minded about that. And in addition to picking the right employer, I would just say develop relationships along the way everywhere you can. Because there are people that you meet that maybe resurface a decade later in a different way that become great connections in a different season of your life. And so just really valuing and having that honesty, integrity, and true relationships in every interaction that you have. Megan, I love that you share that because I always tell, especially uh, my mentees from college, I still keep in touch and mentor some Penn State students. And I, I always talk about the care and feeding of your network. I said, it's great that you connect with people, but unless you care and feed, I'm always like scratching my head when I get a, a LinkedIn note from someone I worked with 15, 20 years ago, you know, and I haven't heard from them. And they're like, hey, there's this job at Google. Can you refer me from it? And I'm like, where have you been? You know, like, what's going on with your life? And I'm good too. Thanks for asking. And Let's connect. So I really appreciate you calling out the networking piece too. All right, Sally, as we get set to wind down our time today, I do want to have some fun here with one thing. You you are a chef. That is a passion of yours. One of the things that you love to cook is Indian cuisine. What would you say your favorite dish to cook is? And I'll tell you, as somebody who's not a chef, somebody who's not very good around the kitchen, I have a lot to learn here. So I'm interested. What would you go with? Oh, Mark. Well, I think I need to give some context. So three years ago, my husband and I did the whole 30. I was just finding I was traveling a lot for work. My stomach was always upset. He's like, it can't be food poisoning from LaGuardia every time, you know, or wherever I was traveling to. 50%. 
Yeah. I'm like 50%. Yeah. Or, or in California and or I ate something bad on the plane. And so the whole 30 was like a fad in his office. So he got me the book. I, I researched prepped. We did the whole 30 coming out of it. I felt amazing. And it turns out I had some kind of intolerance to gluten or dairy, which I went through food testing, which I realized is, um, my mom had Hashimoto's, which is a, a hypothyroidism. And so my thyroid was basically overactive when I ate gluten or dairy. So because of that, I've experimented and have learned so much about cooking. And I had always won, I think it was one year, my New Year's resolution was to try one new recipe a week. And this is how I kind of fell into like, oh, I've never really dabbled with Indian food. And my favorite, I would say it's two parts. One is gluten-free, dairy-free naan. My husband says it takes forever. But you have to get your oven to 500 and like the pans have to be perfect. I mean, it, it's a whole adventure. And then the other is this amazing Indian butter dish. I think I found it. Oh, is it food to gather? I'd have to remember the name of the cookbook. It's amazing. But when I when I want to spend some time, quality time in my kitchen, that's, those are the two things I make. And it smells amazing. And I make enough. So there's a lot of leftovers. I love it. My mouth is watering just thinking about that right now. That sounds sounds delicious. Sally, it is such a pleasure to be able to talk to you today, and uh, we really appreciate you taking time. I know you're incredibly busy at Google, but also with with Sherm and and your your coaching and everything you're doing. So, just really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing some of your wisdom. Well, thanks so much for having me, and and just wishing all of you and your listeners just a happy and healthy rest of the year. Sally Anderson, Workforce Diversity Director at Google. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging FirstPersonBA and using hashtag HumanResolve on social media. <laughs>